I'm Brian Sudbrink, and you're listening to the Layman's Bible Podcast. In the book of Isaiah, a large portion of the book is dedicated to explaining to us God's judgment. God is upset with his people, he's upset with the nations, and he lays out his charges against these groups. So, if we're going to study Isaiah, if we're going to study his book, it might be good to take a step back and just consider the role of a judge. Now, if we were to look in a dictionary, and I went to Holman's Bible Dictionary and just kind of looked up a basic definition of a judge, and I defined it as the following. It is an official with authority to administer justice by trying cases. Now, if we break that down a little bit further into more specifics, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, we see the word uh, used that is shafat or shafat. And in the New Testament, we see the Greek word uh, kretes, and they have very similar meanings. There's considerable overlap. And so the basic definition is that is one who judges, governs, passes down judgment, and pronounces a sentence and decides matters. Now, in English, both to judge and judgment have negative associations, but not so in Hebrew, as one commentator points out. Instead, judgment is the balance, ethics, and wisdom which if present in a ruler's mind, enables him to govern equitably and to keep the land free from injustice. Judgment, when used of God, is that divine faculty whereby he runs the universe righteously, handing down decisions that will maintain or bring about a right state of affairs. So in other words, God acting as judge is his way of running all of creation. He is acting as administrator. He is acting as governor. He is settling disputes. He is sustaining and maintaining things. All of that is encompassed as his role as judge. Now, throughout scripture, we see various people identify God as judge. For example, in the book of Genesis, Abraham identifies God as judge of all the earth. We see it in the book of Judges from Jephthah. Uh, We see it from Job. We see it from uh, King David. We see it from a few of the psalmists. We see it from Isaiah himself. We see it from Paul, the author of Hebrews, and James, just to name a handful. They all identify him as judge. Now, when we go into the Gospel of John, we also see that God the Son, uh, Jesus, is part of this judgment. And if when we go into John chapter 5, we see that God the Father has given Jesus authority to judge and entrusted judgment to Jesus. And it explicitly tells us in verse 23 that the point of this is to bring honor to Jesus, that those, uh, those who honor the Father will also honor the Son. And when we go a little bit further in verse 30, uh, we also see that this is a mutual relationship between the Son and the Father, in that Jesus judges as he hears from the Father. So he's not acting independently from the Father. 
He's acting together and in unity. They're in agreement about the judgment. And Jesus, in turn, teaches us that his ability to judge, the point of it is to please God the Father. And so there's this mutual honoring and pleasing of one another. And we also see in uh, John chapter 8 that Jesus says his judgments are true. They're not, they're not false. They don't miss the mark. They are true. And if we continue going in the Gospel of John, we even see God the Holy Spirit as part of this judgment process. It specifically says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. And this word convicts is the Greek word elancho or elancho. And it means to expose, to rebuke, refute, show fault, or convince. And so basically the Holy Spirit acts in a prosecution role in this judgment. Now this is important because it's not just limited to one part of the Trinity. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all acting together and in agreement about these judgments. Now, from here, let's just consider a little bit about how God judges. Now, earlier in the definitions portion, we talked about uh, the governing aspects. So what does that look like? Well, in a very general sense, God is settling a dispute. When two people are not in agreement, they need someone to go to to settle the matter, to decide how something should go. And God did that. He also appointed people throughout the Old Testament to do that for the people. But we also see from God that his judgment doesn't just carry this idea of uh, punitive justice and carrying out wrath and uh, prosecution. It also encompasses this idea of defending and clearing of charges. He does this for his people in Deuteronomy. He also is noted in the book of Psalms to save the afflicted, so those who are in trouble or are in pain or have uh, do not have the same as everyone else when they are robbed of their basic needs. He ju acts as judge to save them and to bring about a balance. Now, in addition to this... Uh, next two categories are very closely related. The first one is what I'm just going to call uh, being just, uh, an extension of justice. Uh, a synonym, or a couple of synonyms that will go with this, is that God judges fairly and uh, with equity. In other words, God is not partial, he does not show favoritism, he is not unfair, and he is not biased. Uh, in addition to this, very closely related, is that God judges carefully he is not careless. He is not foolish. He's not negligent or reckless with his judgments. He is very diligent when he renders a, a judgment for a, a dispute. Also, God is very faithful with his judgments. In other words, he is reliable and he is trustworthy. This is, this is his reputation. Uh, his reputation is tied to this role. The second category that is very uh, closely related to the first one is that this idea of good and evil, righteous and the wicked. So God is noted by King David to be the righteous judge. The opposite of this would be wicked or evil. Uh, 
very closely related to that is this I, this word that's called upright. God is an upright judge. In other words, he is not morally crooked. He is not dishonorable. He is not unrespectable. And then another very important aspect is that God judges truly. He, when he, when he renders a judgment, it's not counterfeit. It's not deceptive or false or misleading or fraudulent. He judges truthfully. Now, uh, it is also interesting to note in the book of Ezekiel, along with the Gospel of Matthew, God also points out that he judges, in, in some cases, he will judge contingently upon how we treat others. And so, to back up, God is not a God of chaos. He judges according to established standards. So this is very important because in the ancient world with all these foreign deities, these foreign deities never really revealed themselves and noted what it was that they expected. So the people had to take a blind guess as to what they should be doing or saying, etc. to please the gods. But Yahweh is not that way. He established the standards that the people were supposed to meet and have to live by. So, and when we go back to, say, the Mosaic Law, where God is laying it out, it was a lot less about God just giving his people this laundry list of do this, but don't do that, as a means of once you screw up, you know, he's going to smite them. But God, through that law, was telling his people who he was. Is This is my character this is who I am, and this is what I stand for, and this is what I care about. And as my people, you're going to be the same way. And so by extension of that, God will judge us according to our deeds and our, our words, because our actions and our words have profound effects on other people. So, And then it's also interesting to note in the Gospel of Matthew that God will judge us how we treat others uh, in terms of how we judge them. If we just make quick judgments without really carefully considering it and we look down upon them with it, then God will treat us the same way. This idea of God is telling us how you want to be treated, treat others. And to, to drive that point home, I'm going to judge you how you judge others. So, judge fairly. Treat each other fairly. And so that's a little bit about how God judges. But let's go on to consider who exactly does God judge, or who will God judge. And throughout the scripture, we see this category that's just, it it just says, everyone some of the other passages like uh, Genesis and uh, 1 Samuel and Revelation will use terms like all the earth, the ends of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth. And that's pretty, that's a very broad category and it kind of lends itself to being ambiguous. So let's break that down a little bit further. So first, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil. And 
when we go on, say, to the Gospel of John and in 1 Timothy, we see that Satan himself stands, will stand for judgment. In 2 Peter, we, we see that there are angels that have rebelled against God, and they will stand judgment. And so we see this uh, encompassing of good and evil, and God is not biased. He will, both, all of them will stand trial. Uh, if we go into the book of Ezekiel, we see that God, well, and of course, throughout the entire Old Testament, but uh, God judges his own people, Israel. But in the book of Psalms, it is noted that God judges the nation. So God does not just pick on one tribe of people, one group of people, one demographic, one nation. Uh, it's everyone. Everyone will stand trial. And so... It is not a matter of uh, socioeconomic status either. It, its judgment transcends all of that. Now, uh, closely related to that, when we go into the book of Job, Job points out, uh, and he calls it, the highest will stand uh, under judgment. And in this context, he's talking about the greatest, those who have the greatest status, they, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, you know, the, the high class. They will stand judgment, and by contrast, in the book of Isaiah, he points out that the needy will also stand judgment. But, you know, when we're talking about this, keep in mind, uh, just as we were talking earlier, that God's judgment does not just uh, cover punitive uh, and prosecution type judgment, it also includes defending. And so the needy, those who do not have, who have been robbed, there is not this equality. God will come to their aid. He will save them and restore balance. And we see a very vivid picture in the book of Ezekiel of this, where God says he will judge between what he calls the fat sheep and the lean sheep. And the fat sheep are those with a lot and he's not saying that it is wrong to have a lot. What he is pointing out here is those who have a lot but are not willing to help others with what they have. And then by contrast, the lean sheep are those in need. You know, the, the poor, the, the widow, the orphan, the hungry, the, those who are without clothes, those who have no home, those are the needy. And so... Uh, if we continue on going into the letter of First Peter, uh, Peter points out that judgment starts with God's household. In other words, those who are Christians. And this judgment, uh, when it says it starts with us, this judgment usually comes in the form of trials and tribulations, those that test us. And it is meant to bring us to maturity. By contrast, in the letter of First Corinthians, Paul points out that uh, those who are not Christians will also stand judgment. And so uh, it, God's judgment transcends this topic of religion as well. If we continue on in the book of Second Timothy, uh, Paul points out that both the living and the dead will be judged. Just because someone has uh, passed away does not mean that they get to escape judgment. They, too, await it. Throughout the Old Testament, in, uh, examples would be in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, as well as Psalms. We see that God brings the foreign gods, other uh, deities that people worship, he brings them to trial. 
And it is also interesting to note in the book of James, God points out that those who are teachers, uh, teachers in uh, teachers of religion in terms of Christianity, that they will be judged more strictly. And he's putting emphasis there because that is important. It, what you teach others has a profound effect upon them. And so when we consider all of these different people, God is not unfair. He does not leave any particular category or demographic out. It covers everyone, and that's the point. Now, one question that comes up quite often is, well, what gives God the right to judge? Well, you know, much like God's existence, the Bible doesn't really argue um, God's qualification to be judge and his right to judge, but my thoughts here are what I'm going to share, and I'm going to call these the unique qualifications of God, because these are characteristics and qualifications that God alone has. And so, number one, God is the creator. So, uh, reading in one commentary is that Jewish thought was that God's act of creating in Genesis is not simply about bringing things into existence. It's not just about uh, bringing something out of nothing, but it also included giving and assigning everything a role, a purpose, or a function within an established ordered system. And so to contrast that, the word that comes to my mind is that of corrupt. And for a very basic definition, I think of a file on a computer. When a file on a computer is corrupt, it means it no longer serves the intended purpose. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And so when we are corrupt as sinners, we have gone away and we do not serve the role, purpose, or function that God originally gave us. And he is he's the creator. And because he is the creator, he has the right to assign that. Just like if I were to create something with my hands, I created it and I get to say what it will and will not be used for. Second of these qualifications is that of authority. So in the Gospel of Matthew, along with the letters of Romans and Colossians, we see that one, God has all authority. And two, all authority that does exist, whether it's a government, a nation, individuals, a boss, an employer, whatever it is, all authority is given and established by God. In other words, all authority that does exist is derivative of him. He is the source of authority. The third qualification is that God is all-knowing, and the fancy term for this is omniscient. He knows everything. Now, you know, as teenagers around, you know, age 16 to, you know, whatever, we like to think that we know everything, but God actually does. And so, for example, you know, God is not limited by physical boundaries in space. So when we go into the book of Job, we see that God sees people's every move. Uh, Proverbs puts it a slightly different way in that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Another aspect of this is found in the book of Ecclesiastes in that nothing is hidden from God. And the book of Romans puts that a slightly different way in that God will judge the secrets of men. 
And so he sees everything. There are, there are no limitations in regards to space uh, that his knowledge is limited by. But we also see uh, that he's not limited by time. Uh, later on in the study in Isaiah, particularly when uh, going through chapters 41 through 43, he's not limited by time in that he can tell the former things as well as those which will happen before they happen. And the point that he is making here is that his knowledge is perfect. It is complete. It transcends time, the past, present, and future. It doesn't matter because his knowledge is complete. And Jeremiah points out that God knows us before we're even born. So he has this complete knowledge. And of course, the book of Romans uh, has this to say about it, and that his wisdom and knowledge have no limits. So the next qualification is that God doesn't judge based off external evidence alone. Yes, we have actions and words and maybe a history, but he also sees further than that. In the book of Isaiah, uh, the Messiah is uh, foretold that he will not judge but what he just sees and hears. Uh, Jeremiah puts it a slightly different way in that God tests the heart and the mind. And Galatians kind of echoes that in that God does not judge by external appearance. He sees into a person's heart. He knows their motives and their intentions, not just the actions and the words. And we do not have that ability. Only God has that. Now, other unique qualifications uh, is that God is holy. He is perfect and he is good. He is the embodiment of those characteristics. We see in the book of James that he cannot be tempted, so he is incorruptible. And that in the book of Hebrews, we see that God cannot lie. And so I think these are the main focus as far as trying to answer or trying to answer the question of what gives God the right to judge. And I think this is important when we go through the study of Isaiah, where God lists out his charges and there is a considerable amount of it that we need to keep these things in mind that yes, he is judge. He does judge fairly. He will judge everyone and he alone is uniquely qualified to judge. If you have questions or comments about today's episode or even just want to say hello, feel free to email me at laymansbiblepodcast at gmail.com. That's laymansbiblepodcast at gmail.com.